0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
2: This is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm the executive director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program. And I'm here on Zoom with my dear friend and colleague, Ann Greenhall, the good Dr. G. How are you, Ann?
0: I am good, Jeff. Great to be here.
2: All right, and if, if I'm tracking where we are in the academic year correctly, Anne, <laughs> I am guessing that you have just completed a Herculean grading effort.
0: This is true, Jeff. Right. <laughs> it's the so... end of the semester.
2: Sorry, are you feeling like a sense of accomplishment or are you just really punchy right now from reading all of those <laughs> papers and projects?
0: Um, I always feel a sense of um, closure, which is really wonderful. And actually, I think it relates to our guest and the book that he has written, because this is always a time of reflection for me to pause and stop and think back on the semester and what went well, what would I like to do differently. And if I may say the wonderful thing about the academic calendar is that it repeats. So we have a chance to go and try it again. <laughs> so it's a time of reflection, which I really appreciate.
2: Well, I know you to be a deliberate and intentional person. And so I'm glad to, glad to hear you're engaging in reflection um I did what I do at the end of uh any um any semester and I got out of Philadelphia as quickly as I possibly could and <laughs> went out in the woods and tromped around for a bit and that was that was the way in which I could uh, uh start that reflective process and also put a little space between me and the city for a bit
0: oh i like that jeff I, I love it so you you had a little bit of a hero's journey
2: <laughs> <laughs> well it was it was a tragic hero's journey if i could uh show you the blisters uh my old boots caused my feet uh, but <laughs> okay. yeah but uh a, a nice chance to just get out of uh our normal space and time and and given you know these last 14 15 months um also just a really nice opportunity to get out of my basement <laughs> I, have to admit, I have to admit that too. So, and I, I think, Mike, you seem, you know, we usually accuse him on a Friday of perhaps, you know, going to visit grandchildren or um, gallivanting off to some other part of the world. But I'm fairly sure he's just teaching all day with our executive MBA students today.
0: You know, I think so, you're right about that. Yeah. yeah. We but can't give him too hard us. a time.
2: Yeah. Nope. <laughs> He will not be with us, Um, but uh, we will remind all of our listeners that new episodes of this show premiere every Friday, 9 a.m. Eastern, here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Um, And please, you can also uh, follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. That is SXM Business. And I just have to say, I've gotten so much better at enunciating SXM <laughs> business.
0: You read my mind.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we've got um, we've got a, a super interesting conversation coming up. Um, we have Dr. Jim Harder, who's back on the show with us, and we're going to bring him on in, in just a second. Um, uh, Dr. Harder is Gallup's chief workplace scientist. And so one of the things that means is that we only have an hour show we could probably have about six hours of conversations with jim uh, and so we'll we'll try and keep ourselves focused i know one of the things that we want to talk about is um the the new book that's just come out and, and of which jim is uh one of the co-authors and that is well-being at work how to build resilient and thriving teams so jim let's uh bring you back on here to leadership in action how are you today
1: great Great to uh, Jeff and Ann. great to be with you again. Thanks for having me. Of course. Our
2: pleasure. Yeah, let me, if I can just tell our listeners a little bit more uh, about you. So I, as I mentioned, Dr. Jim Harder is Gallup's chief workplace scientist. He's led more than a thousand studies of workplace effectiveness, including the largest ongoing meta-analysis of human potential and business unit performance. Uh, he's the best-selling author of 12, The Elements of Great Managing, well-being, the five essential elements, and the number one Wall Street Journal bestseller, It's the Manager. Uh, And Jim is also widely published in uh, prominent business and academic journals. So, um, Jim, before we dive uh, a little deeper into the book, can, can you just say a little bit about your role as a chief workplace scientist? And then to me the really unique role that Gallup as an organization plays within uh with within the the
1: world sure thanks um so my job is to work with our research team to advance our science in ways that help organizations improve their cultures to 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 improve and have more thriving and resilient cultures and those that that have high performance. So we look at it from a lot of different angles. But um, I have a lot of fun working with our team on those kind of projects. And this last year, I don't think data has ever gotten old so quickly before. A lot of changes, a lot of changes. Absolutely. Um, and in terms of Gallup, uh, we're an analytics and advice firm. And so we collect data all over the world. We have a, a global poll, the only one of its kind, that, that captures random samples of populations all over the globe. We've done that since 2005. And we also go deep into organizations. We do census surveys and um, provide advice to organizations on how their cultures are evolving over time. And so uh, that gives us kind of that granular data so we can look across millions of teams and see how those teams differ on various outcomes and and how they're different from an engagement and a cultural perspective. So uh, we got those two big sources of data. We also have a, a panel um, that we track in the U.S. A longitudinal panel, where we ask all kinds of timely questions. That came in really handy during COVID to track what was going on and how people were perceiving their work and in their lives.
2: Yeah, and um, Jim, if I if I can ask you a follow up question uh, about that, one of one of the things that I have paid attention to for for a decade is Gallup's engagement data. Um, and really looking at at engagement in the workplace, um, you know, my recollection here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that the U.S. had seen a bit of an uptick over the last decade in terms of you know the percentage of employees reporting that they were uh, engaged within their work, um, and, and I wonder. Could you talk a little bit both to that rise as well as any impacts that we've seen over these last 15 months as we've all tried to absorb the impacts of the global pandemic?
1: Sure, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. We have seen an increase in engagement over the last decade. Um, it was in the 20s and now is at 36% at the end of 2020. Um, and we're tracking this year also, Is at 36% also first quarter of this year. We haven't even reported that yet, but I'll give you I'll give you that's the cool. early information you got some scoop yeah um so so uh that's encouraging but it's still only 36 percent so we got a long ways to go but uh, i am you know one one of our goals as an organization one of my goals personally is to see that number go up due to what organizations practice because it means so much to people's lives and um, career well-being connects to so many other aspects of our lives and and when when people are thriving and engaged in their workplace, it uh, it has let's call it tentacles to a lot of other areas, including our health and uh, how we view our communities and um, even our, our social lives and any of course our finances as well. So um, that's an important number. The global number has also been going up. Um, we'll, we will be releasing a State of the Global Workplace Report in June, so that's that's coming. That's Great. coming. Um, and, and so. And- yeah, Jim, am I
2: right when you think about global engagement numbers that traditionally they've been about half of what the U.S. engagement scores are?
1: Yeah, they were, uh, our last report had it at 22% oh, and okay. so so it's versus up 36. Up. Yeah. Okay. So uh, th- this is a high bar metric on purpose because we wanted a metric that actually links to real performance outcomes. So we put a lot of effort into studying which items on surveys um, elicit that kind of information and link to performance. And so when you, when you when you increase that engagement percentage, you're really doing something significant to your culture. We're not like just combining a bunch of fours and fives together on a survey and saying mm-hmm. that's good enough. We're setting a high bar that links to performance. And some companies have gotten the, the average of the best companies is about 73% engaged employees. Mm-hmm. So it's very changeable, Um, but it takes some work.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and um We'll uh, we'll start to shift in a little bit here, but I know these these conversations are all interconnected when we when right. we you know we think about this data. What um, and, and and I'll tell you that I I just wrapped up a week long executive education course where we were working with uh, emerging leaders, people who are leading new teams, stepping into new roles, leading organizations, and one of the things that we share with them is the engagement data and encourage them to you know really think from that perspective. Um, I'll give you the question I most often get um, when sharing the data, which is, well, you know, what are the levers that really do have an impact um, if a company wants to make some investments and uh, increase the engagement of its workforce?
1: Yeah, there are really four things, but it essentially comes down to to one of them in large part. But there are four really important factors in organizations that improve engagement. One is that it comes out of the CEO's office and uh, is really emphasized as a part of their intentional culture. So it isn't just like a, a survey that exists in HR and it happens once a year. It actually comes from the aspirations of the CEO who says we want this to be our culture and here's why. So really good. And then the second one's communication. So people know what's happening and why. So it's, it can't just exist as a survey. You've got to be very intentional about how you communicate it and how you um feed it into your other processes, like performance management and how you uh, integrate it with your learning and development programs and how you integrate it even with uh, what we've traditionally thought of as wellness programs. Um, so that, that that that's a couple things. The CEO's office is important. The uh, communication aspects, um, upgrading your managers from what we talked about earlier, boss to coach Mm-hmm. So that uh, you've got a very intentional way that you're putting your managers on a journey so that they become better and better at having meaningful conversations with people and being in touch with them mm-hmm. and uh, and manage them, managing them on an ongoing basis, not just an annual review, um, not, not waiting and only having periodic conversations, but actually being very intentional and doing it in a way that feels natural and not awkward. Mm -hmm. So that, that takes practice and it takes, takes learning and it takes practice and it's not like a learning event. It's a, it's it's gotta be more ongoing. Then the the fourth one that we've seen organizations that improve is accountability. They, they hold managers accountable for the kind of culture they create. And uh, that can take on a lot of different forms, but at minimum it's, you know, this is part of your job you know, if you're ruining people's lives, you shouldn't be a manager. So uh, that's it's taken seriously by the organizations that that create change. And people know that it's, uh, it's got to be an authentic part of how they they manage. Some people are not not suited to be in the role. Other people can learn a lot. Most people can learn a lot if we give them some some shortcuts about how to how to deal with people. But the big one is the man is that manager component. Um, That's about 70% of the variance in team engagement is comes right back to what the manager does.
2: It almost seems like that data would lead someone to write a best-selling New York Times book entitled, (laughs) It's the Manager.
1: There you have it. There we go. All
2: right. Well, um, let me remind our listeners, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132, and I'm your host, Jeff Klein. Our guest today is Gallup's Chief Workplace Scientist, Dr. Jim Harder. And he's telling us, uh, he's about to tell us, because I had wanted to talk about global engagement data for a little bit, um, about his new book, Wellbeing at Work, How to Build Resilient and Thriving Teams. So Anne, let me turn this over to you and, and bring your voice into the conversation.
0: Oh, thank you, Jeff. And Jim, really a pleasure to have this chance to speak with you. We've been talking about engagement, and I'm wondering if you can help us make the segue to well-being. What's the relationship between well-being and engagement?
1: Well, uh, we have a lot of different ways we look at wellbeing. well being. Well, well being is really about the whole person, it's about um, everything that impacts how we think about and experience our lives and our days. And so, uh, well being is a bigger concept than engagement. Engagement's more narrow about what happens at, at work, even though we know work and life cross over. Before this pandemic hit, um, there was a trend in the workforce where uh, workers were expecting their organization and even criteria for joining an organization was whether they thought that organization could improve their overall life and work and life were even more blended and, uh, bam, uh, the pandemic hit and, and now yeah. it's really bl- totally blended, right? Different relationship between work and life than we've ever experienced. Probably, probably will always be different than it's been before. Um, if you're engaged though, you do have double the chance of thriving overall. Um, we measure well being uh, one simple way to measure it is, is that we've borrowed from Hadley Cantrell, uh, a researcher at Princeton back in 1965, developed a ladder scale, where he asked people to imagine a ladder from zero at the bottom to 10 at the top and, and to to tell uh, to, to say what where they're at on that ladder of life right now. And then he asked a the follow up question about the next five years. And those two together give us what we call net thriving. So when I refer to thriving, I'm talking about that simple measure that tells us a lot about a person, how, how they think about their present and their future. And the reason that those two parts of it are important is that um during the pandemic, we were tracking it and we found that the deterioration in well-being was mainly due to how people view their present life. People held on to their future views and had they saw their way out of it. And that that's big because if they didn't, I think we would have had a real problem. And uh you know we've been tracking a lot of things worry and stress and s- sadness and anger have all uh, gone up over over time and not just due to the pandemic but um it, it 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 increased more during the pandemic but even before then it was it had been trending up globally among workers going back to 2009 so there's something sy- systemic in the workforce and i think well-being is an important antidote because um you can be th- uh, engaged in your work and it does increase your chance of thriving. But if you're engaged and not thriving, you've got a 61% higher chance of burnout. So the reason well-being is so important is if all, all, if all we're focused on is our work, we're very likely to get burnout. That was, a, that was a surprise that the effect was that big to me.
0: Mm, boy, you've packed a wallop in that response. And I, I so appreciate the notion that engagement is necessary but not sufficient for well-being at work. So it's possible to be highly engaged, but not have that sense of of flourishing or thriving and that that can lead to burnout. Can you talk a little bit about a little more about the impact of the pandemic on engagement and then on well-being?
1: Yeah. Jeff asked me for that too. And I'm glad you asked me that. Um, So, we did see we have we, seen that annual trend that's been going up, but in the U.S. we're able to track engagement on a pretty much monthly basis since March, um, March through the end of the year and, and current. And uh, surprise to a lot of people, engagement actually went up a little bit uh, when the pandemic started. Um, employers were pretty good at responding, uh, listening to people, responding, and providing the kind of uh, resources that people need. Um, that then kind of started dwindling a bit, but we saw a big drop in engagement in uh, June, and it was it coincided with the George Floyd um, oh. killing and events all around that, and particularly it dropped because leaders' engagement dropped a bit. I think leaders had to take a step back and figure out how to respond, and it it threw things off. Uh, but it rebounded um, pretty significantly after that, and then has maintained. Uh, uh, on average in 2020, even though 2020 was a very unusual year and, and we saw more movement engagement than, than we've ever seen before, um, it rebounded and um, it's uh, it ended the year at 36 percent. So it, it, re- and, it actually reached a high of 40 at one point.
0: Okay. And how about well-being during that same time period?
1: We saw uh, some of the biggest drops in well-being. So this is kind of part of the paradox a little bit. Well, even though engagement Right. Year, year over year went up um, well-being dropped significantly both from the perspective of how people evaluate their lives um, a, a bigger drop than we've ever seen at once right when the pandemic hit and then um, the da- daily worry stress uh, went way up and uh, they've come back significantly both of them have in the U.S. because I think people are seeing their way out of out of it for the most part but uh, when we see well-being drop like that it's very unusual You know, we saw a drop during one of the past recessions, um, the 2008 recession, we saw a drop in well-being, but it usually takes compounding effects for people to lose their resiliency a little bit. Um, People are really resilient to one thing going wrong, but when you have multiple things going wrong, and that's why it affected, you know, lower income people even worse. Um, It affected women worse, and uh, it affected young people worse. Um, probably young people had fewer degrees of freedom, you know, to, to, to get other jobs and that sort of thing. And, and women had the burden, you know, in large part of, of household and, and other factors, caring for elderly, et cetera. So, um, even though, you know, not ever, you know, that, that's not the case for everybody, but on average, women do bear most of that burden. And so it, that, that had an effect on their well being as well. Very
0: good, Jim. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. Back to you. Thanks, Anne. Um,
2: so I, you know, Jim, I want to make sure we draw out some of the other component parts of well-being um, as we're having this conversation. And we've really thought about, you know, we've we've talked about engagement and and sort of the career and professional side. Could could you help us understand the whole framework that that you're using to really measure well-being?
1: Yeah, to to measure um, overall well-being, we we both uh, try to tap into one the remembering self. So it's it's our self that sits back and reflects. on on life and says, here's where I'm at right now. That ladder of life I mentioned is that. We also measure the experiencing self, which we ask people to recall the previous day and tell us how they felt most of the day. So when I'm talking about stress and worry, that's people saying that they had a lot of stress and worry the previous day. Um, To give you some perspective, when we ask people about anger um, globally in the workplace, one fourth of the workplace says they experienced a lot of anger the previous day. That's a big chunk of people that are angry, angry for a lot of the day. Um, So that's kind of startling on its own. So those are kind of the the two big er areas. And then we have, what we've done is we've studied elements that individuals and organizations can act on to impact both of those parts of ourself. And they correlate with both. And uh, we've got, we found five elements that were universal around the world that, that predicted uh, better lives and better days overall, in addition to some other things like health outcomes. <clears throat> and they're they they they're in order um, of career well-being. We've been talking about that a little bit with engagement. Mm-hmm. Social well-being, which is having meaningful friendships in your life. Financial well-being, which is managing your money well. Physical well-being, which is having enough energy to get things done that you need to get done. And then uh, community well-being, which essentially is liking where you live. Now, each of these elements have kind of um, a hierarchy within them, so to speak. Sure where there's a suffering state and there's a thriving state. Um, to give you just a quick example of that, uh, for community well-being, a suffering state would be that you live in a, a an area where you fear for your life um, on a regular basis. At a thriving state, it's where you're actually involved in helping your community improve in a way that's meaningful to you. That's where people say, you know, I, I've got a life that exceeds my wildest expectations when you're getting that kind of reinforcement from what you're providing back to society.
2: And, you know, Jim, I'd be curious when when you look across those elements that that you've described, career and social and financial, uh, physical and community, where do you see the the greatest amount of variance? Um,
1: Career, career well-being, yeah.
2: Interesting. And
1: that's that's where the biggest opportunity is, I think, because um, when you get career well-being right, you're setting the stage inside an organization. You, you're starting to build some trust, and you you get you're setting a stage for impacting all the other well-being elements. Right. Because first and foremost, people come to work expecting to get the work stuff right. You know, I don't I don't want to come to work and uh, not know what I'm supposed to do. Uh, that's a basic.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't want
1: to come to work and um, not have what I need to do my work. I don't want to come mm-hmm. to work and not feel cared about, or when I do something well, not get recognized for it. If you don't take care of those fundamentals. Um, and now a big fundamental for the new workforce is development. People are joining organizations and staying in organizations when they see development happening. And th- those are basics that you've got to get right, I think, to, to really be able to impact the broader well-being constructs we've been talking about. Yeah. And let me, let me bring you in for
2: another question.
0: Okay. Thank you, Jeff. Now, this may be too academic, Jim, and if it is, we'll just move right on. But I'm wondering if you've given some thought to the distinction that um, faculty member at Yale, Amy Resniewski, makes when she talks about the difference between job, career, and calling. So I'm just curious about how you think about career. When you say career, what does that mean?
1: It's really uh, liking what you do every day. That's the that's the most basic, but within career is I know. By the way, I know Amy's work, Um, and uh, with within career um, is an element that we've measured pretty consistently. That was particularly important during the recession. The mission or purpose of my company makes me feel Mm -hmm. my job is important. Um, Mm -hmm. That might be related a bit to the calling part that she's talking Mm about. I would argue, from what we've done inside organizations, that really effective managers can take anybody and help them feel connected very changeable that help their help them feel like their work is contributing to something bigger. That was really important in the pandemic. Because, uh, you know, when people just get locked into their everyday work, and, uh, and they don't feel like it's benefiting some bigger purpose, yeah, start to feel a bit siloed and isolated, particularly when you're working remote. Mm -hmm. And so managers helping people see the how their work relates to something down the road or in the future, something bigger than themselves is really important. Um I'll let you follow up on that if you want.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, you I just so appreciate what you're saying. And I've I've seen that myself and Jeff can relate to this when we uh walk around the halls of Wharton when we are there in the building huntsman we have a uh, facilities maintenance uh, man, who I remember one day walking uh, down the hall, he gave me this big, broad smile, and he was he was holding a plunger in his hand. He was on the way to unplug a, a toilet. And I asked him, you know, how are you? And he said, you know, just great. And I probed a little bit, and he just answered that he he gets such a feeling of Uh, fulfillment by working at the university, which is about learning. It's a learning organization and had this sense of a higher purpose on his way to plunge a toilet. And I just thought to myself, would I love to bring him to one of my classes and just have him talk (laughs) about the nature of work and having a sense of purpose? So I really appreciate what you're saying that in the hands or in the company of a very good uh, manager, supervisor, leader, someone can bring that out, give give others a sense of working for more than just the immediate task or themselves.
1: Yeah, helping people see how their everyday tasks relate to something much bigger is, is really valuable to people. So they're not just thinking of it as. The task, but this, this actually relates to a customer and how they'll they'll perceive our organization, or or how they'll they'll get better as an individual. Mm-hmm. Or um, there, there's not too many jobs you couldn't find a really strong purpose in.
0: Jim, you were talking about the importance of a manager in bringing out uh, engagement and a sense of well-being. And so the corollary of that is if we have a manager who's not particularly skilled, he or she is one of the risks. Um, here. Can you talk about some of the risk factors when it comes to thriving, building a thriving culture at work?
1: Yeah, certainly uh, poorly skilled managers would be the the biggest because it relates to the other three. There's we found four big ones that organizations need to be on the lookout for. So they could have all the best intentions, but if they don't kind of understand these risks that are in front of them, they are going to have a really tough time building a, what we call a net thriving culture. Um, I can come back to the poorly skilled, but one of them that we've talked a little bit about is mental health. Um, we've seen trends in mental health that are pretty disturbing right now where the, um, the census bureau reported, uh, significant increases in, uh, in, in, uh, anxiety and depression symptoms. Um, We've seen in our data, significant increases globally in in the percentage of people with uh, worry, sadness, stress, and anger, and um, we know those are all related to burnout. Um, So mental health is an important one. And uh, the the other kind of troubling thing is we've seen there are increases in people kind of dropping out of work due to opioids and Angus Deaton and Ann Case have written quite a bit on that topic. And uh, we reference a lot of their work as well. But uh, that, that's one that, um, of course, organizations have um, EAP programs to treat uh, mental health issues. Um, in Gallup, we don't treat uh, mental health. We, we do more so work with organizations to try to build the right culture so they can get ahead of it as much as possible and uh, create a culture that gives reduces the chances that those kinds of things will happen. But that, that's one that's sitting in front of us right now that I think... Uh, most organizations are aware of and are, are thinking real seriously about now, uh, numbers but of course having a good manager helps with that too because it, having a good manager will uh, who's highly skilled can direct people to the right resources and or um, help them improve those various elements of well-being um, just through the kinds of conversations and ideas that they have um, the, the, the second one that is important is uh, lack of clarity and purpose from leadership. So we reviewed the value statements from over 100 uh, US, large U.S. organizations, and they were uh, remarkably similar. They all included things like integrity, honesty, respect, diversity, inclusion, customer focus, customer centricity, collaboration, innovation. Um, but when we ask employees um, whether they believe in their organization's values, only 27% of people can strongly agree. So there's a, there's a gap there. And uh, that gap is important to close. So to, to, to close that gap, we have to kind of understand how does clarity of clarity and purpose happen in an organization It really happens through the through the cascade of the manager ranks inside organizations. and when managers themselves are developing and and building trust on their teams, uh, employees don't second guess what's coming from leadership. So a manager has a choice to either say it's us, our team versus everybody else, or we're all in this together, and here's why. Why leadership is saying what they're saying, and here's how it connects to our work. So they're the translators, and, and are a big factor. Yeah. There's, so they're, they're underneath that one too. Then the the, th- the third one, risk I think is to over rely on policies, programs, and perks. Why do I say that? I'm not saying those things are bad. They're necessary and important. But if we if we expect to build a culture based on policies, programs, and perks. Uh, if that was possible, there wouldn't be culture problems in organizations because most organizations have those, right? But um, most policies, programs, and perks are translated through the, the work in, how people perceive their work environment, e- either whether people are aware of them or not, um, or whether they utilize them effectively. And I can kind of give you a couple of examples of that. Um, so when someone's engaged at work, um, their engagement level has multiple times the impact on their well-being in comparison to vacation time and number of hours worked. Those are two things that can be influenced through policy, right? We can say right. we, don't, we, don't want, we don't want you working on weekends or we don't want you. Um that's a very individual thing from what I've seen in managers. The manage will manage to that very individually. But you might have some people that want to work on a Sunday to get ready for Monday, you know what? No. But so it, it has to be managed by the manager through the individual. But the point is the policies alone. Um, won't determine your well being as much as the kind of work environment you put in place. And uh, then they're interpreted somewhat differently. Vacation time, of course, very important, but just giving people six weeks of vacation time won't necessarily improve their well being if their work environment is bad.
0: Oh, boy. Well, once again, Jim packed a wall up here. So I'm going to recap. We've got four risks the employee's mental health, a lack of clarity, and purpose, and you talked about the importance of values there, how they're communicated, over-reliance on policies, programs, and perks, and then where we started, and that was the risk of the poorly skilled manager. If I could go back for just a moment to the employee mental health, just some A little bit of guidance for for myself because this show is always therapeutic for me and also our listeners. What recommendations would you have for managers to help them, you know, take into account the employee's mental health and build that thriving culture? So just a couple of tips or recommendations.
1: I I think to continue to get um, to to continue to practice the, the concept of meaningful conversations with people. That's a basic, um, that word meaningful is really important, but, um, looking at all of our data, I would, um, recommend that every manager employee dyad should have at least one meaningful conversation per week minimum. Um, and that's more than most people are doing, of course, but, uh, we know that when recognition happens, it has to be frequent. It has to be regular. There's kind of a dopamine response that goes goes off when we, when we get recognition, and that's kind of fleeting. So mm-hmm. um, also, when managers have meaningful conversations, they understand where the person is at in in their work life, their work and life, and they can adjust in this cur- current environment. And past um, knowing. Something about what the obstacles that someone's facing can help a lot in terms of adjusting what time they can work. You know, some people might have had kids at home during the day and are working odd hours. Um, everybody's got a different situation. A manager is the only one who's in position really to know those different situations and to respond to them. So um, having one meaningful conversation per week is, is one really important one. I, I would I'd offer one, one more Um <laughs> Involve people in setting their goals. That's a, that's low-hanging fruit that doesn't often get done, and mm-hmm. it has a big impact on engagement. It, mm-hmm. it creates ownership. When people have ownership um, for something psychologically, um, they have a sense of autonomy. They uh, they have a sense that uh, they have some effect on what's, what's about to happen in their work life. Mm-hmm. And they generally set bigger goals than the manager would set for them.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so great. I even think I've had that in my own experience. I just had a conversation with uh, one of our colleagues, and she had what I thought was an ambitious uh, timeline. And I said, just double the amount of time you think it's going to take. <laughs> so my goal was lower, lower than hers. Jeff, let me bring you back into the conversation. Thank you, Jim.
1: Uh, All right. Thank you. Uh,
2: thanks, Anne, and I'll remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, and I'm here with Anne Greenhall. Together, we're talking to Dr. Jim Harder, who is the Chief Workplace Scientist for Gallup and co-author of Wellbeing at Work, How to Build Resilient and Thriving Teams. Um, and, you know, Jim, I, I couldn't help but think about um, some of the research that Gallup has done on followers. And I, and I wanted to see if i could connect that into this conversation um i can recall i think it i think i read about it for the first time in strength-based leadership um and Gallup had really you know had been focused on what followers need and had identified these these four components um, of what followers were looking for from their managers and if i mm-hmm. if i have this um, right from memory it was trust compassion, stability, and hope.
1: That's right. How,
2: how does that intersect um, with the conversation you were just having with Anne around meaningful conversations and the relationship between managers and employees?
1: I think it's particularly relevant at the leadership level to think about those as outcomes, psychological outcomes you want to get to. And it's, it was particularly important uh, when when a when a pandemic like COVID hit us Mm -hmm. um, because there was disruption and what, do people look to leadership for during disruption? Um, They want to know that there's something in the future that I can, and and even if leaders had to be honest and just say, I don't know, but here's our plan. Here's what we're going to do. And to adjust the plan when you need to, but to be honest with people and um, something you you don't want to give people false hope of course, but you want to help people know that there's, there's some, a plan and some stability. So I, I think from a leadership perspective, of course, that's filtered through the managers if it's done effectively. Um, in fact, we we were looking at, uh, we, we asked people during the pandemic whether their their manager or supervisor was keeping them informed. That did increase early on and then it kind of trailed off again. I think people kind of got, um, on average, people kind of got uh, too comfortable maybe a little bit or just started backing off again doing what they did in the past. But early on, there was a real push up there um, so hope st- st- stability is really important for the reasons i just mentioned that people need to know that there's something i can rely on and uh, and i think supervisors have a big effect on that their local supervisors help them um, help them know that they have what they need to do their work i think immediately people's work context changed and, and they needed to know um, the basics you know, do, do yep. I have what I need to do, to do my work and has my role changed? You know, relative to others, there were furloughs, layoffs in some cases. How did my, how's my job change with this person gone? Kind of thing. So I think those kind of basics were really important and they relate back to those four.
2: That's great. Thank you um, for making that connection. And you know, it 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 kind of brings another question up for me in my mind. And that is, you know, what is the role of or what role does the set of peer relationships that any employee has, you know, within an organization, um, what role, what impact does that have on
1: well-being? Even more than um, in terms of when we see growth, we see growth. When, let's say a manager improves their own well-being that tends to have a cascade to the team that they're with, but it's even more so um, a, a cascade within peer groups. And I think the reason for that is when we're thinking about well-being, we're thinking of people like me right you you want to think about so if, if someone's giving you some advice or you're listening to an idea somebody has about how they improve their well-being it, it makes more sense to me if it's someone like me as opposed to you know someone who might be making more money than me or somebody who might have higher status than me. You might say well they could do that but can I really do that? Um so the, the peer that's why th- that's a big area it's a great question because it's a big area for organizations and managers to facilitate um discussion groups uh, with teams and, and individuals who have common interests mm-hmm. to uh to just share ideas. You know, everybody mm-hmm. goes about those five elements we listed off in different ways. And that was one of our big learnings from all this is that you don't have to attempt to be a athlete to have high physical well-being. You don't have to necessarily get 10 new friends to have high social well-being. You just need more energy out of the people that you out of the relationships you have um, or hang out with people who give you energy. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to be a multimillionaire necessarily to have high financial well-being um, it's more about managing you know those two kind of outcomes of uh, reducing daily stress and increasing financial security in the longer term so everybody has you know strengths and weaknesses in the areas those areas of well-being and i think we can learn a lot from the people that we're around
2: you know it's, um it's that answer um, it triggers like um, so yeah. many more <laughs> questions and connections for me um i knew we could talk for 6 hours right <laughs> um you know i when i think about you know the role of peer relationships um and i i connect that to the way in which the conversations around diversity and equity have really evolved mm-hmm. to be inclusion and belonging focused now um what are the ways in which you know you, you've seen organization use peer relationships like affinity groups on one hand where they're organized around a similarity and then also um, fostering belonging across diverse sets of groups to to establish these meaningful peer relationships.
1: There's a concept in the academic literature called uh, interpersonal congruence. And what it is, in essence, um, you may have had people on talking about this. Um, what it is, in essence, is shortening the distance between two people or a group of people in a very quick, as quick a pop- as possible way. The way that we've found that to be effective, whether you're talking about diverse groups or more homogenous groups, um, is to f- uh, take a first step that that's often left out, and that's help the individual understand their own strengths, give them some language around strengths um, so that other people know you in a different way than they may have before, or they know you in a way that now makes more sense because the, the the label the labels of the strengths kind of fit with something I've observed observed in the individual for a long time. Or you might learn that they've got a strength that complements one of yours, or you might learn that you have a similar strength you didn't even think about. But it creates a language that starts to um, that increases trust in groups pretty quickly, and it, you can start over almost relationships with people. Um, in, a, in a different way. Think about a manager who's been, or anybody on a team, we're talking about peers, I guess, but anybody on a team who's who's had a certain way of dealing with other team members over time, and uh, they have a new way of thinking about those people, um, they can more easily take a step back and say, hey, I didn't know this about you. Um, I didn't know you had that strength. Or This is why you do that the way that you do. And, and I can explain it now, and, and, and it's more acceptable. I think People see it a lot with you. You hear people talk about it with spouses as well. That if if you can think about someone's behavior as more of a strength than a, you might you might have categorized it as a deficiency in the past, right? But I, but I guess the the biggest thing is it starts to build trust and it reduces some of those more awkward kind of conversations. <laughs> Jeff,
0: great. could Thanks. I sneak in here with a follow up?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right, thank you, Jim. I I'm, I I am a believer in helping people run with their strengths and kind of quiet the foibles, surround themselves with people who compliment. I am a believer, but I'd love for you to coach me a little bit and some of our listeners on how we run with strengths in our staff members and at the same time, hold people accountable.
1: Yeah, strengths is not an absent of accountability. It's just a, a more efficient way to have accountability actually, because you can set goals based on who that individual is and you're still holding them to those goals. Um, But if you involve them in goal setting. um, So one thing we learned early on in our research uh, a few decades ago was that uh, there's a difference between trying to prescribe the steps for an individual in terms of how they get work done uh, in comparison to defining the outcomes first and knowing that they can have their own steps to get there. Potentially, you might give them some ideas, but um, Mm -hmm. different people have different ways to get to the same outcome. And that uh, ideally is through their strengths. Mm -hmm. So you're still going to have the the three parts of performance management that are really important. One is is goal setting and setting expectations. The the second is having the right ongoing conversations. So those meaningful conversations we're talking about Mm -hmm. earlier. And the third is accountability Mm -hmm. and strengths fits inside all that. And it makes all of it more efficient. Mm -hmm. So you, yeah. you got to get the goal setting right to get the accountability part, right?
0: Yeah, that's great. Great. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff, for letting me slip that one in there.
2: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you one more and then we're we're probably going to have to start to move to our wrap up after action review. Am.
0: All right. All right. We'll get it in there. <laughs> oh, I get one more. Okay. Yeah, I'm ready. Yeah. I'm I I ready. I'm ready. Okay. okay. Here I go. Jim, follow up to that. Okay. So let's say I'm a manager and I have come into a position and I have a number of employees. Some of those employees I have hired for particular roles and some I have inherited because I've stepped into the former manager's role. And I discover that one of my staff members is a little bit like a square peg in a round hole. And I am trying to run with her strengths, but there's just, you know, this is just not a good, a good fit for individual and role. So can you coach me? What do I do?
1: Well, the first step is to go back to the basics of engagement, involve them in in setting setting their own expectations and help them target toward the goals of the organization. Um, You got to, I think, first do everything possible to find out whether they can do what they do best in that role. Some people aren't a good fit for the role. Uh, Even if you try to adjust the role and individualize as much as possible, there's some people that just are not a good fit. And so I think it's a responsibility of of the of the leader or manager to help develop them into another role that that might work for them. I I found that um, the best managers uh, have a reputation, even though they overall they have low turnover rates, they still will move people when they need to um, for the for the betterment of them. And uh, in some cases, it's helping them get into another organization. Some cases, it's a, another position in a different department. Um, but uh, the worst thing in the world is to, to be asked to do something that you just aren't very good at and continually asked ask to do that task or, or yeah. that job or set of responsibilities. So I think that's always got to be an alternative. Um, but I think you've got to have, you know, another way to think about that. Anna, is there's kind of three three criteria to look at in the individual are they how are they performing in terms of their individual responsibilities how are they doing in terms of team collaboration and then the Mm -hmm. third what value do they bring to customers and if you kind of pass pass each person through those three filters i think over time you can figure out whether they fit or not and also how's it feel to them you know right
0: right yeah i've i've found in my experience that sometimes i have uh, a staff member maybe who is willing but not necessarily able. And I've had the reverse, able and not willing. (laughs) And the gold mine is able and willing. (laughs) So just (laughs) hitting that gold mine always takes a little bit of uh, science and art. But Jim, I really appreciate your coaching on that. And I know our listeners do too. (laughs) Thank you. All right, (laughs) Jeff.
2: All right, so uh, we are we're racing to the post right now. So what I'd like to do is just we'll get right into a quick after-action review to say you know I'll start with you, Ann, and then over over to you, Jim. Um, and what's a, a a theme, a lesson, an insight that yeah. you really want to hang on to from today's conversation?
0: Well, I really appreciate the the conversation, and one takeaway that I'm going going to keep with me is that notion that engagement. Is necessary, but not necessarily um the be-all end-all for well-being. <laughs> it's necessary but not sufficient. So as a leader, manager in an organization, I need to think uh very seriously about both.
2: That's great. Jim, how about you?
1: Well, that uh, that that Anne's was was one that was my biggest takeaway after doing all this research that we did on this. Um <laughs> Look at because that,
0: Jeff, I went right to
1: it. I was awakened at how big I knew I knew it was additive, but um I was I was kind of awakened at how big yeah. a factor that is in people's lives. But I'd also um another one I'd like people to kind of take away from this is that to get well being right on those five elements, don't expect that um people are just sitting out there living in this utopian state. Everybody's working on something. And uh, you don't have to um, become perfect in any of them to be thriving. Um, even people who are thriving or are have have some room to grow most mo- almost all the time. Yeah. Um, and you don't have to become the superhero person to to be successful in any of those areas. Um, it's it's really going to be it's it should be small steps you take, mm-hmm. and they can have a big effect. And also use your strengths to get there in the way that's that's you that's most efficient for you. Yeah,
2: great. Jim, I'll I'll tell you, I almost want to claim that last statement you made as mine. So I, you know, I'm the host, so I get to do what I I, I want as we wrap up here today. But, you know, just remembering that everybody's working on something. um, I think that is that's such an important frame um, for the way that we engage in relationships. And then I'm going to tack one final thing on here. And and it's a really practical piece of advice, but have one meaningful conversation a week. I love um, I, I think that it's an easy benchmark. It's an easy thing to track. And, and as you've uh, described to us today, it really makes an impact. Yeah. So Jim, we just want to thank you um, for joining us on the show today. How do listeners find out more about the book and, and more about the, the work at Gallup?
1: So for our, our work ongoing, we have a global workplace report coming out next month. Uh, gallup.com, G-A-L-L-U-P.com. We put all of our latest findings out there and mm-hmm. reports um, very accessible. And then, uh, the book you can get it at Amazon. All right.
2: Amazon books. Everywhere books are sold. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. So thank you very much, Jim. Thanks for yeah, joining thank us. You. Thanks
1: for questions. having me. You guys are yeah. a lot of fun.
2: Um, and, uh, we want to say thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Jeff Klein, Sam Greenhall. We are leadership in action on business radio powered by the Wharton school Sirius XM 132. Have a great
0: day. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.